If you're, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of the scripture. Matthew 6, 7 to 15. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning to you all. A number of years ago, I realized, probably not for the first time, that I struggled with prayer. And I realized this was a challenge. I was, at that time now, I'd become a pastor. It's not just a challenge for a pastor. It's a challenge for anybody who is a disciple of Jesus. We remember that Jesus says when you pray, Jesus assumes that prayer will be woven into the fabric of our lives. One of the lines that was helpful to me uh, regarding the Lord's Prayer actually comes in Luke's Gospel. We have the Lord's Prayer here in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we have a version of it in Luke's Gospel. And in Luke's Gospel, the disciples see Jesus praying, and they come up and they say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And that was helpful for me because I realized I wanted to go to Jesus and say, teach me how to pray. I struggle with prayer. Is there something you have to help me? I struggle with this practice. Last week, we focused on the why of prayer. What I want to do today is focus on the how of prayer. Because what we get in this prayer, we get words to recite. And there's, this is really important to notice. We get um, words to say from Jesus. Sometimes I think maybe in some of the traditions that we come from, we think that prayers that are recited maybe are, are not as good or, or less real as, as spontaneous prayer. But, I, but notice how when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he gives them words to recite. And that's important. So we can use this prayer just as it is, in it, as it is written. But what followers of Jesus have recognized for thousands of years is that not only does Jesus give us words to recite, not only does he teach us a prayer, but he teaches us a prayer that teaches us how to pray. And what we find is that the Lord's Prayer gives us a structure, a scaffolding to build a life of prayer on. And I've got actually some, uh, some words in the bulletin for you. I would encourage you when you go home this week to, to, to use that to work your way through the prayer. And that's actually what we're, we're going to do in our sermon today. We're going to work through these six petitions. And, we're, and we're, I want you to notice that it begins with the yours and we're going to shift to the ours, Okay. The first three petitions, the first three requests in the Lord's Prayer focus on God, your kingdom, your will. And the second then turn to our own needs, our forgiveness, our bread, our deliverance. 
And what we'll find, we'll just be able to just barely scratch the surface of each of these. But I want you to see for your own life is that use this as a way to then go deeper into prayer. So let's start with our Father in heaven. The prayer begins with an orientation. Who are we speaking with? Who are we addressing? We're addressing our Father in heaven. Notice this word, our. Sometimes we kind of uh, blow past that in our prayer, but it's a reminder to us that this is a personal prayer. If we remember from last week, Jesus has sent us to the prayer closet alone, so we know we can pray this prayer alone, but it's also a communal prayer. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world that are praying for us when we need their prayers And we're praying for them. This is a communal prayer, our Father. Who's on the other end of this conversation? Who are we praying to? Who are we communing with? We recognize, we remember it's it's not a distant God. It's not an impersonal God. It's this personal God who draws near to us. We've been sent to the prayer closet. And we find when we're in the prayer closet, we have this very intimate relationship between a child and a heavenly parent who loves us. And you know, sometimes we maybe think, well, how do I know that this God loves me? Uh, I think uh, and Jesus tells us that the Father who meets us is unseen. So I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of experience of loving people that I've never seen. But we, we remember as followers of Jesus, oh, on the other side of the cross and resurrection, we have uh, seen Jesus. And if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. And I know that just gives me assurance. A lot of times I'll just, I'll just put Jesus' face in front of me. And I remind myself, I'm not just praying to one person in the Trinity, I'm praying to all the Trinity, including uh, Jesus, that God took on a human body and a face, our Father in heaven. So I've, I've got the Father, and now I'm going to shift a little bit into heaven, and I realize there's something different here, right? I have this uh, personal, intimate God I'm speaking to, this heavenly parent, but it's not just any parent, it's the creator of all. It's the Father in heaven. And, and as I heard a, a preacher kind of say one time, as you begin this prayer, what you can do is kind of move between these two realities. He's my Father. I have this intimate relationship. He loves me. He's the creator of all. He's the king of the universe. And we can kind of move in our mind, but he's my Father. He's the creator. He's my Father. He's the creator. And we're capturing just the immense breadth of who this God is. It's a personal God who draws near to us, and it's a God who is beyond our imagination. This is no ordinary parent. This is the one who created the universe, the all-powerful and all-knowing God. Hallowed be your name. So now that we know who we're addressing, who we're speaking to, we can begin to move into our petitions. And again, these first three will focus on God. Our first request is that God's name be hallowed, meaning God's name be honored, set apart, treated with the highest respect, which can be a little bit confusing because, you know, it sometimes brings to question our, to our mind, can God be anything but holy? It's a bit like saying, make that ice cold or make that fire hot. Can God be anything but holy? No. But as we're beginning to settle into our prayer in the prayer closet, uh, we realize that you and I mostly have come out of a world that doesn't hallow God's name, that that doesn't give God the honor that God deserves. And and so we're given this space to reflect, one, how 
uh, how amazing our Lord is, our God is, and we can, you know, you can, this is a time of prayer. If you want to just break out into praise, this is a good point. If you are a singer and you're in the prayer closet, you're praying, just break out in song. It's a way to offer your praise to God, the Father. But it's also a time in the prayer closet to feel an ache, right? Because we know there's those around us uh, in our families, in our community, in our world who don't know God as Father. And so we, we ache for them to know God like we do, right? This is a time I know many of you in your daily prayer life, you're praying for your children. You're praying for people in your family. This is a time to, to feel that ache. We want them to know God as God is too. Your kingdom come. Okay, now what we're doing is we're asking for the kingship, the rule of God to come. Uh, we might, again, kind of pause. Isn't God king of all? Isn't God ruler of all? Yes, but again, God's kingship, God's rule is not recognized by everyone. Right? Not, we know that not everybody professes Jesus as Lord. We, we believe that one day every knee will bow and profess Jesus as Lord, but, but we know, we can look around and know that that's not true, and actually there's many other kingdoms that vie for our allegiance. Right? And so again, we're kind of this, this stirs up an ache in us. Man, we ache for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is heaven. And, and notice this is, this is a little different because this isn't how uh, we're often trained, but notice the direction of what we're calling. We're calling for heaven to come to earth. Right? We, we typically often, because of various things, our songs and Hallmark cards and stuff, we, we tend to think of ourselves going to heaven one day, but, but the prayer is always, God, let your kingdom come to earth. We have this vision of, of the Garden of Eden where earth and heaven are together, we know that's not the case right now because we know God's will is not being done on earth. But we have this vision revelation of the new Jerusalem coming down and God dwelling with God's people. And we, we feel this ache, man, I want God's kingdom. I want God's rule. I want God's shalom to come because, man, we look around the earth. We know God's will is not being done fully, right? We know, uh, we know there's evils of war, uh, we know of systemic racism. We know of, uh, we know of mass shootings like we, we just read about yesterday. We know God's will is not being done on earth as in heaven, so we ache for that to come. And also, this is, I think this is always important for us, but I just feel like the last few years, we've got to get this right. Every day, we need to get our allegiances straight. Because every day, when we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying is, we're not aching for the rule of the Democratic Party to come on earth. And we're not aching for the rule of the Republican Party to come on earth. We're not even aching for the kingdom of the United States to come on earth. Whose kingdom do we long for? The kingdom of God, right? And so every day we pray this, we make sure we've got our allegiances straight. We make sure we've got our hope straight. Our hope is in the kingship of Jesus Christ. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's this line, I think it's my favorite line from a Rich Mullins song. Some of you know who Rich Mullins is. He's one of my heroes. And uh, he's got a song called Hold Me Jesus. And he says, surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. And I beat my head against so many walls that I'm falling down, I'm falling my knees I think what I love about this song, Hold Me Jesus, is that Mullins captures how hard it is to surrender our will to God. 
We often would rather fight God for things that we don't even want than to take from God what we really need. How do we surrender ourselves to God? Right? I think if we actually know what we're praying here, we, this is scary stuff. Surrender your will to somebody? You want to surrender your will to someone? Who are you going to surrender your will to? Only if you understand that God's will is the best thing that can happen to you. Right? You're going to have to go back. Let's go back to the Our Father. Who are we addressing? We are addressing a God who is for us. We are addressing a God who, if God's will is worked into our life, that is the best thing that can happen to us. Our Father who loves us, who has good intentions for us, and who's all-wise and all-powerful, that's whose will we want. So we want to pray. We want to pray every day that God reshapes our desires. He reshapes our perceived needs so that, so that become the will of God works its way into our life. Okay, we're halfway through the prayer. Notice we're basically completely focused on God up until this point. I know often um, when I arrive, when I begin to pray in the morning, I usually arrive a little bit distracted, sometimes feeling kind of down, sometimes really annoyed about something that's happened um, in the recent. I, I, I come to my prayer life usually focused on my will, my kingdom, and my desires. And what I find is that if I'm willing to spend the first half of the prayer focusing on God, I arrive at a different place to my own needs. God wants us to get to articulating our needs. But when we spend time meditating on God, we arrive at a different place. So now we move into the hours, our bread, our forgiveness, our protection. Um, typically, I think we in the Western church and the United States, often we see this daily bread as kind of a, a, a metaphor, a stand-in for uh, our needs. And I think that's perfectly fine. I think in this part of the prayer, this is where you're going to want to just pour your needs out to God, whatever those needs are. But I think it's worth noting that Jesus, he says bread, and I think he probably means bread. Okay, remember Jesus, we're up on a mountain here in the Sermon on the Mount, and these disciples that are gathered around Jesus, they're not very unlikely they're wealthy, right? They don't have stock pantries and packed fridges. Like, I literally have, like, a half cow in my freezer, half beef. Like, they don't have that. Like, this, my pantry, we could, we could survive, I think, for months with the food in my house, right? Many of you probably could, too. Jesus is not talking to people who have half beefs waiting for them in their freezer, okay? They're in situations where they didn't know from day to day always where they're Next meal was going to come from. Uh, when Abel was living with us, a couple times uh, we would talk about, Abel grew up quite poor, and there were days, Abel said, where he did not know he was, what he was going to eat that day. And I think I can speak for myself. I don't know what that's like. I, don't have, I, do, I can't remember any day that I wasn't sure like, where my food that day would come from. And so, you know, when I ask for bread, um, one of the things that I remember is, man, there's people in our community, in the world, who, who don't have bread that day. And I, I mourn the reality of that, and I, and I remember, man, my bread, the resources I have as a disciple, I'm to make those available to others. So I think we, that's good to recognize that challenge, right? There's, it's still a challenge in our world today. I think we probably tend to miss the other challenge that we have, and that's excessive bread. 
why is, it, why is it a challenge to have excessive bread? Isn't that what we all want? A stocked pantry and a stocked freezer? The challenge, and the gentleman in the video mentioned, is the challenge is that we, we struggle to recognize our dependence on God when we have as much as we do. Right? We have massive amounts of bread, literal bread, but also bread in our bank accounts that's stockpiled in case of an emergency, right? And so what happens is that it's hard to feel like you're really dependent on God that day for a meal when I know I can turn to my bank account, I can turn to my pantry, I can turn to all these other things. And so I struggle to know what it means to cry out to God for daily bread. I remember when Abel flew back from Benin the first time. He'd been to Benin, brought with him a certain amount of money that it was invested in various people and projects, and he helped build a house. He flies back, and I'm talking to Abel, and he says something like, I was in Paris, and I had $6 left. Okay? Didn't, I think, at the time, didn't have a credit card. What I felt at that moment was terror. I imagined myself in Paris, a place I've been many times, in the airport, and I've got $6 to my name, I've got no credit card, and I feel terrified. <laughs> he wasn't telling me that story. He wasn't nervous at all. He was just telling me a story. And I, and I realized, and I realized many times over the three years that Abel Liss, uh, lived with us, that I was often way more anxious about his needs than he was about his own. <laughs> we would go to the airport, and I would be worrying about all these things, and Abel didn't seem to be worried about him, and so I had to be anxious for him. And I don't know all the reasons, but I think part of it must be that Abel had been in a position where he literally had to cry out to God, give me my daily bread. And what happens when God comes through for us, we're able to build up trust in God. That God is going to take care of us. I've heard some of your stories, and I know some of your stories where you've been at the end of your rope. You didn't know where groceries were going to come from. You didn't know how a bill was going to pay. You didn't know emotionally how you were going to get through that week. And you cried out to God. And God answered your prayer. And what happened is that you built a relationship of dependency on God. That's a beautiful thing. To have a need and say, God, I got nowhere else to go. I need your help. To see God through then builds that trust between us. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Ernest Hemingway has a short story called The Capital of the World. And in the, the way the story begins is he recounts this joke that was told in the city of Madrid, which has all these boys named Paco. And the joke is about a father who comes to Madrid and he puts in an advertisement in the local newspaper that says, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. And the joke goes that that day at noon at Hotel Montana, a squadron of police had to be called to disperse the 800 young men who had answered the advertisement. And Miroslav Volf points out that the joke works because it speaks to the underlining longing that so many of us have to be forgiven. Whether we're sons or daughters, mothers, fathers, friends, or colleagues. Jesus understands that forgiveness is indispensable to the life of a disciple. You and I, we need forgiveness like we need bread. We need it every day. And yet, I think this is the part of the Lord's Prayer where we often chafe at or we avoid. Right? There's two parts to this petition. We'll talk briefly about both. 
forgive us our debts, I'm going to God asking for forgiveness, as we forgive our debtors. Why is this so hard? I think it's con- confession is hard. Right? We, we might be moving through, we, we cry out for justice, and we, we, we name all our needs that we have, and we get to confession, and it's like crickets. This is a vulnerable place in the prayer. It's a place that can feel heavy, right? Because it's the place where you and I, if we're honest with each other, with ourselves, we recognize how, how far we've fallen short of what Jesus has called us to be as disciples. And what we can miss in this petition is, is just how much relief can be found here, right? This is the space in the prayer where we find forgiveness. Tyler Statton, who's a pastor up in Oregon, says that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, confession is not a white flag, it's not a sign of failure, but a victory flag. Confession, he says, is a way to, I like this expression, reverse the curse that we see in Genesis. Most of you probably know the story in Genesis, when sin enters the world through Adam and Eve, uh, what's the first thing that Adam and Eve want to do when sin happens? They want to hide They want to hide from God. They hide in the brush. They want to hide from each other. They clothe themselves. Sin makes us want to hide. And Sten says, and I think this is right, confession is the place where we undress ourselves. Confession is the place where we stop hiding. Why do we stop hiding? So that God's healing can get in every last little crook of us. See, in the biblical story, we actually run to confession and run away from hiding and holding up appearances. But in the reality, often in the church, we do the opposite. We run away from confession and we run toward keeping up appearances. And yet, there it is in the Lord's Prayer, baked into the Lord's Prayer, this space for confession, for forgiveness. We can, be, we can undress ourselves figuratively before God so that he can see us and heal us. Um, We're a little bit like the characters in Harry Potter. If you know the stories of Harry Potter, you know Voldemort is the the evil villain. And Voldemort has such a a hold on people in that story that they won't even say his name, right? And so a lot of the characters in the the books, they refer to Voldemort as you-know-who or he who must not be named. The only people that can actually name him are Harry and Dumbledore. Sin does not want to be named. Sin wants to stay hidden. Sin wants to stay secret. And when sin does that, that's how it holds its power on us. It creates shame in us. Confession is the opposite of shame. Confession is naming what cannot be named and therefore unleashing that grip that sin has on us when we keep it secret. Right? Confession is about healing. We don't arrive at this point of the prayer to be shamed by God. We arrive quite the opposite, to find healing from God. I am so, so grateful that Jesus included this line as prayer because I know I need this daily, hourly, sometimes every five minutes. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Jesus knows we need the gift of forgiveness and he knows we need it because we're going to have to extend that out to others, right? If, if confessing our sins is hard, how hard is it to forgive those who have sinned against us? This is hard. You know, if you notice in the passage that Emily read, at the end, Jesus circles back to forgiveness. 
I don't know why, but part of it must be that Jesus is like, this is going to be hard. I'm going to remind you at the end of this prayer about forgiveness. Because if you're like me, you're going to want to kind of blow past this, but you're going to get to the end, and I'm going to remind you of the non-negotiable nature of forgiveness. I don't know, I don't know what you're struggling with right now. I, I know one of the things that I've recognized as a pastor is almost everybody I talk to is struggling to forgive someone. So if you're struggling to forgive someone, you're like most people that I talk to. Forgiving is hard. And yet we have to hear Jesus' stark words here. As a, if you profess to be a disciple of Jesus, forgiveness is not optional. It's not one of those things you can decide, I'm going to take this part of discipleship or I'm going to leave it. Jesus says this is essential to being a disciple. Forgiven people forgive others. Let me say that again. Forgiven people forgive others. Right? That's why this petition begins with us first receiving forgiveness from God. We realize how generous our God is with us, how forgiving our God is with us, and that then helps empower us to extend that forgiveness to others. Let me say a few things about what forgiveness is and isn't. Let me be really clear. Forgiveness is not ignoring what happened or minimizing what happened or pretending like what happened never happened. Actually, Forgiveness is the opposite of that. If someone has wronged you, what you're doing when you're forgiving is you are naming the wrong and you are condemning it. I think sometimes we miss that. This is why it's important. You can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend like it never happened. No, forgiveness is naming the wrong that was committed to you and condemning it. Okay? Inherent to forgiveness is the acknowledgement that what happened to you was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. Okay? It doesn't ignore it. Secondly, forgiveness is costly. The language here is debts. Oftentimes, as we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we'll use the language of sins or trespasses, and that's good. I think debts is helpful here because um, think about this. Somebody owes you $1,000. You've lent them $1,000, and they come up to you and say, I can't pay this back. I got no way I can pay that $1,000 to you back. And you decide, I'm going to cancel that debt. Okay, what happens when you do that? Most likely, the person has been carrying this heavy burden of having this debt to you. They're going to feel relief, right? They're going to actually feel this burden being taken off their shoulders and lifted away. And, and, and when you're saying, I'm going to forgive your debt, you're saying, I'm not going to hold this against you, right? Every time I see you, I'm not going to say, hey, remember that $1,000 I forgave? Wasn't that really great of me, right? No, like you forgive the debt, it's done. But there's a cost, right? Who bears the cost? You bear the cost. That thousand dollars, you're not getting back. There was a cost and it was born. And I tell you that because I, I want you to see forgiveness is costly. If you're forgiving someone and you're like, oh, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. You're not, that's not that you're doing it bad. If you have to forgive someone daily and you have to go back, don't beat yourself up. If you have been seriously wrong, there's a good chance that forgiveness is going to be a long process where you're going to have to keep saying, I forgive them. Okay, don't beat yourself up if that happens because forgiveness is costly. And there we have, we have Jesus' stark words. We must forgive as disciples 
of Jesus. But I want to say one more thing about forgiveness. It's costly, but it's a gift, right? Do you know what's even more costly than not forgiving someone? I'm sorry. You know what's more costly than forgiveness is just choosing not to forgive someone. Um, whenever I come to this, I think about our late brother, Paul Bowman, and whenever I would touch on forgiveness uh, in the sermon, I could almost be guaranteed as I stood in the back, brother Paul would say to me, choosing not to forgive is like swallowing poison and expecting it to kill the other person. And it's good. It makes a point, right? I'm not going to forgive you, and I'm going to make you pay for that. But in reality, we're just ingesting the poison ourselves, and it's killing us. Jesus knows, man, on this way, the, the path of discipleship, we don't just need forgiveness for them. We need it for ourselves. We've got to have this worked into our daily lives. Last petition. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Maybe you were taught this prayer as a child. Maybe you prayed this prayer before you went to bed. But as I was reflecting on this prayer and this line this week, I realized this is no child's prayer. If you and I understand what we're saying in this last petition, we realize we are so naive so much of the time. We're asking for deliverance from the evil one. We are so naive because so often we have no idea the danger that lurks around us as disciples. I'm currently listening to the first book of the Lord of the Rings series. And I keep, this is the image that came in my mind. We think we're out tromping around the Shire, right? We think we're out, we're in the good land of good, good soil and quiet and birthday parties and six meals a day for the hobbits. But what we're asking here is to deliver us from the evil one should remind us we have long left the Shire. Just as danger lurks around Frodo and Sam and Pippin and Mary in the form of black riders and the old forest and the barrel whites, even in themselves, the lure of the ring, danger lurks all around us as disciples of Jesus. Matthew, you're being a little bit hyperbolic. Listen to these words from the apostle Peter. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or the Apostle Paul, who reminds us that we are in a fight, not against flesh and blood. The enemy is not they. We say that again. The enemy is not they. The enemy is the rulers, the authorities, the powers of the dark world. We are so naive. Because we fail to understand that, that sin isn't going into the candy store and swapping something. Sin is a cosmic power that wants to, to, that wants to take a hold of you. We are in dangerous territory. We are not in the Shire. Do not underestimate the dangers to your faith as a disciple of Jesus. It's as Dallas Willard says, this request is to lead us not in temptation, is a vote of no confidence in our own abilities. It is a prayer that we be not be brought into the time of trial because we have zero confidence in ourselves, that we be not led into the dangerous places because we may not survive them. It's why we pray every day for God to deliver us from evil because we are weak. But he is strong. He is strong because when he was brought into the time of trial, he resisted. 
And when Jesus confronted evil on the cross, he conquered. That is who we follow. Our vote for ourselves may be of no confidence, but my vote for Jesus is full confidence. It's why the early Christians in the Didache were told to pray this prayer three times a day. We would do well to heed that instruction. It is the Lord's Prayer. It is the prayer that Jesus gives his disciples and the people of the way. It is words to recite and a framework to build a life of prayer. Let us close together by saying these words. We'll say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's pray as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.